The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Well, as we sing that song about Christ being provided as soul satisfaction and a great treasure to us, we say thank you and ask that you would make that increasingly felt as the truth it is. You have provided him for us satisfaction of soul. Would you make that real? Would you press it into us? We, we who are your people, we, we know that we sing it and we celebrate it, but we also need increasingly felt experience of it. Spirit of God, please carry out that work in our lives. Cause us to rest in Christ and be satisfied, delighted in him. Delighted with him. That ultimately is the ground for us on which we stand. That's that's the the root that causes to grow up in us a, a given away life, a laid down life. A life that enables us to use authority and power and influence, not for self, but for other. That's what we're going to talk about today, Lord, in this passage as you put it before us here. And even when we say words like, like rule and authority and dominion, those kinds of words make us uneasy. They sound hard. And for some of us, they bring up maybe personally or from our, our reading or exposure to the world, they, they bring up danger and terrors because we are familiar with awful authority. The Lord, if you would cause us to know you as treasure and sufficient food for our souls, on that ground we can stand and we can be people with authority well. So help us this morning, Lord, to think, think about this topic but ultimately to find you, would you show yourself to be this treasure, this, this full hope for us? Would you, would you control this moment here now, Lord, to make it possible for us to hear you, to hear you well and to hear you clearly? Would you speak and would you be heard? Clear away all distractions, all physical distractions and all spiritual distractions. Lord, if there is sin in some way that we hold on to, would you cause us to let go of that, to repent of it even now? And, and to, to lay ourselves open and submitted before you. And then will you speak and will you conform us to Christ? Build your people, Lord. Under the name of Jesus. It's in him and for him we pray. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 22. You were last in this chapter two weeks ago, listening along as Jesus explains the Passover meal in relationship to his coming death. At this point in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus and all these massive crowds we've been seeing are gathered in Jerusalem because, as we found out, 
It's the time of the Passover feast. They've come to celebrate the Passover, which was set up by God and was to be celebrated regularly as a reminder of how long ago, way back long ago in Egypt, God had acted to deliver his people out of bondage there. He told his people through Moses that he was about to bring the 10th and final great plague against Egypt as judgment and to kill all the firstborn of the land except ones who listened to his provision. He told Moses to tell the people to kill a firstborn, a lamb, not the firstborn son, to kill a lamb instead and put its blood on the doorframe of the house and to hide behind that blood, behind that door. And then when God came in judgment against the land, he would see the blood and would pass over those who were behind it. And his wrath would skip them. And they would be delivered from judgment, out from judgment, and delivered instead into a sure covenant of promise. Year by year, they recalled that in this feast, and then along comes Jesus. And as he sits with his disciples and leads them through this meal, this celebratory meal, towards the end, he begins to tie the elements to himself. To summarize, what he's saying is that the Passover and the Passover lamb always was about me. Long, long ago, God set up something that was a pointer towards Jesus, the great Passover lamb who's about to be sacrificed. His blood offered up in place of those who trust him, hiding behind his blood, the wrath of God can and will pass over people. They'll be delivered into life. That is coming up. This is on Thursday. That's coming up tomorrow. The sacrifice of the Passover lamb. And it's coming up because he's been betrayed, as he, as he knows and points out. Judas has gone and has sold him, already sold him to the Jewish leadership. They have a plan in motion. But it's all according, in fact, to the plan of God. It goes, as it has been determined, verse 22. It's been God's plan since before the first Passover lamb was slain to kill this one in place of us. That's what Jesus is talking about. And meanwhile, the disciples are concerned about cabinet positions in the new administration that Jesus is going to bring in. There is a significant disconnect as we move into verse 24, our passage for today. Jesus is over here talking about all that I was just summarizing, and the disciples are, in a sense, saying, yeah, 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 yeah. meanwhile, who's going to be Secretary of State? That's great. What about the roles? For stylistic reasons, Luke has gathered together a whole bunch of conversation topics that happened here at the very end. He's gathered them together, and the first one he puts in front of us is, is this one that shows where the disciples' thinking is at this point. They are not getting it still. They do not understand the, the flow of the events, what's going to happen, but, but more importantly and more tragically, this conversation reveals that they don't really understand Jesus. They don't get his ethos. They don't get who, how, what he is. He's talking about in, in the, the most solemn and the sweetest terms, 
about sacrifice for others, and they are concerned about power over others at the same time. They don't get it. That's what our passage is about today. Jesus trying to bring them around and to explain, to teach to them, and to show them, to to express to them how it is they can get on board with what he's like and how he is. So we're going to look at today. Let me read verses 24 to 34 and then draw two observations that Jesus makes about leadership. Leadership like he leads. So this is Luke 22, beginning in verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Stop there. Two observations, and here's the first, really, really the, the foundational one, the most important one. In God's kingdom, authority is expressed as servant leadership. In God's kingdom, authority is expressed as servant leadership. Verse 24 begins with a dispute an actual argument arose among them. Again, the the contrast must be felt. Jesus is talking about one thing and they are arguing about something else. About who's going to be greatest. Not great as in really good or excellent, but great as in highest, as most exalted. When Christ sets up the future kingdom... Which one of them is going to be regarded by people as most highly honored, as most important, as most powerful? That's what they're concerned about. And Jesus says, you are thinking like the kings of the Gentiles. Like non-believers, that's what he means by Gentiles, non-believers. What you're arguing about is how they think, how non-believing rulers are. They exercise, they exert lordship over people. And they accept and love to accept the honorary titles that others give them. They love to be called benefactor. They love to be called your highness, your honor. 
That's how authority works in the world. People in charge wield authority, and it is felt as they establish one up, one down. They establish in charge and in submission, and they use the authority that they have to gather from people benefit for themselves and honor and glory for themselves and require people who are beneath to give it. That's how they work. That's how it works. Not so with you. Verse 26. Now, Jesus is talking to the disciples here who eventually, along with Judas's replacement, we don't get in this account where Judas departs. We know at some point in this, this evening he leaves, but he's talking here to the 11 faithful disciples, and eventually with the, Judas's replacement, they are going to be the 12 apostles, the lead authorities of the church. This unique 12 never replaced by anybody else because they, the requirement was they had to be eyewitnesses of all that Jesus went through. He's talking to them first and specifically. So what we're going to see here is first and specifically about them, but we keep thinking about it. We're going to see that by logical extension of the argument, this applies to every Christian who is in some position of authority or leadership. It kind of teaches us how to use authority and leadership. But it's first about the apostles you aren't to be like the kings of the Gentiles, he says. Instead, leaders in the kingdom, you guys, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, as the least. And the leader as one who serves. So the two sets of contrasts, and it's easy to see what those contrasts are, greater and younger, you know, one of least significance, a, a ruler and someone who's not a ruler, a servant. You know, you, those contrasts are easy to see. It's the as that's kind of the tricky part. Jesus is not saying literally one becomes the other. That's what you are to do. Rather, one becomes as the other. You remain the one, but you do so as, or in a manner that resembles the other. That's the point. Which he then goes on to illustrate. At a, at a table, who's the greatest? The one, the one who's reclined, they would, rec, they would eat a feast, reclined, usually leaning on one elbow and eating with, with the other hand. So the people who are reclined are actually the, the ones who are dining, the ones who recline or the one who is serving, the servant, bringing the food, clearing the dishes. Which one's greater? Obviously the one who's reclined. But how am I among you? I'm among you as one who serves. He doesn't cease to be the Lord. He doesn't cease to be the king of the kingdom. He remains great. He remains the greatest. He is the greatest, however, who has become as the least. In his attitude, in his behavior, his words, he is lowly and gentle and humble of heart. He, this is God the Son, who did not regard that right to be, to be counted as God, to be seen as God, to be honored and spoken of as God, to be obeyed as God, to be reverenced as God. He did not regard that right as something to be grasped onto and always demanded, but instead was willing to set that aside and become as a servant. 
a servant who is going to be even submitted unto death. He is and remains fully God, but has become as a lowly, humble one, a suffering servant. The great ruler is the humble servant, and that's how the apostles are to be in their positions of authority, which are real and are emphasized. Verses 28 and 29. Again, he's not referring to Judas because Judas is not one of those who stayed with him all through his trials. Talking to the faithful disciples, something's coming to them. Verse 29. I assign to you, like my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. Which is more than just you get to be in the kingdom. To assign a kingdom is a bit like, think of a a general in the army saying to a colonel in the army, I assign to you a regiment. I give to you, I I assign to you a regiment to command. That's what he means. Not, Not to be in, but to command it. To lead it to be in charge of it. That is now your job. Jesus is giving them a kingdom to lead, to rule as their job. Another way to render it might be, I confer on you the right and responsibility to rule the kingdom. Just like it was conferred on me. I'm to rule the kingdom, and I'm calling you to rule it with me, under me. And grammatically, he means to say that's happening now and in an ongoing sense. You now have a job. You have a role to rule, sit at my table, and eventually to judge the people of God. So the authority is real. Christ and his appointed apostles are very much in authority in the kingdom. He is not conferring on them assignment to some sort of an egalitarian community where no one's in charge. They are to rule. And when we extend this and think about the rest of the New Testament, we see actually there are other people called to rule in the church also. Other leaders. Other human beings. Now, are we all people? Of course, yes. Are we all sheep? Yes, of course. But some are also shepherds. The great shepherd is under shepherd the apostles, and then the apostles speak about other under shepherds, pastors and elders and churches. And as Hebrews 13 says, they will give an account for that leadership. It's an assigned role from God that they, leaders, pastors, elders, will give an account to God for. Give an account to God for. That means it's real. Authority is real. And it is emphasized here. But it's not the main point. Jesus' main point in this passage is not to tell them that they are to be in charge. If you remember, they're already arguing about who's going to get to be most in charge. Authority is real, and he does say that. But the the point is that the emphasis he's giving is how they are to be in charge. 
They are to lead as servants, to express authority as servant leaders. Seeking to use what power they have been given, not for themselves, but for others in the kingdom, like Jesus. Like the great shepherd, so also the under-shepherds. This is the nature of true kingdom leadership. This is how Christ-like leaders express authority. Towards what end they express authority. They do not run from the authority. They, they embrace it. They express it. And they express it in this manner towards this end. To bless, to active, actively love by doing good to others. Particularly to, to paraphrase how Paul describes his ministry amongst the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, paraphrasing this, Paul says, I, I don't lord over you. Instead, I work with you for your joy. Paul's quite clear on his authority, but he says, I use that authority not to lord over and to rule like the Gentile kings, but instead to work with you for your joy, meaning for your joy in God. As servants of you, as servants of other people, in the name of Christ, this is what he calls his apostles to, and by extension of this principle, to all who lead in the church, all Christians, all members of the kingdom, period. Think about this. What pastor or elder can say, that's what Christ was like, leading as a servant leader, that's what the apostles are supposed to be like, but I'm okay with being like the Gentile kings using this authority that I have to serve myself. What church leader can say that? No, not us. What husband can say that? What parent can say that? Yes, I understand. Christ, servant leader, apostle, servant leader, pastor's elder, servant leader. Not me, though. I've been placed in a headship position to bless myself. And number one job is to make sure these kids honor me. Make sure this wife respects and obeys and lifts up me. What husband can say that? What parent can say that? Any position in the church, any, any position in the body of Christ, what Bible study leader, what deacon, what, how, how do you say that? Take it outside of the church. You're a Christian and you own a business. You have employees. How do you say, yes, Christ is a servant leader and the apostles and the elders. And when I'm an elder at church, yes, but now out here, I can use all this to benefit me. A manager at, in your job, you've got some employees beneath you. You're a team leader at work. You're a team leader in your sports team at school. You're just a subcommittee leader of the PTA at your local junior high in charge of the fundraiser in the fall. I mean, you've got some small job in which you are in charge, how can you say, you can't, how can you say, yes, that's what the, the pastors, and, but not me, here I am in charge for me. Any Christian, any Christian who finds him or herself in a position of authority or power or influence or honor, someplace where you have the ability to make something happen, Somehow, 
You're to exercise that authority as one who serves. Not to avoid the authority. Sometimes, scripturally, you've been assigned that that authority, the, the, the responsibility that comes with the role. Sometimes it's by the providence of God you've stumbled into it and, and come upon that position in this time. You have been given authority. But it's not for you, it's for those beneath you. To bless them, to, to use the power that you have to love them with it. To work things so that they are blessing to others beneath you. This is the answer, right? What we have here is the answer to the world's problem with power. Why do words like rule and dominion and command make us a little uneasy? Because we are well aware that power corrupts. We have plenty of history, plenty of experience with people who are in charge of stuff hurting other people. We got a we, we don't need to look very far to, to realize that when somebody gets a little bit of power, what follows soon on the heels of that is somebody gets hurt, somebody gets exploited, somebody gets abused for the benefit of the one who's in charge. That's how the human heart works. The human heart is most concerned with looking out for number one and will always see as soon as it gets a chance to influence, as soon as it gets a chance to steer events in some way, it'll see it as an opportunity to steer events to the benefit of number one. That's how the human heart is. And all sorts of terrible things follow. So we instinctively fear power, especially when it's in someone else's hands. And what we try to do is we try to balance it with opposite power or to create a world in which no one has power, in which everything, everything is all equal and no one is in charge of anything because we think that protects us. Until somebody comes along who's powerful and doesn't buy that idea. There has to be another answer other than we just have to suffer along under it or we try to deny everybody from having power, which doesn't work. And here's the answer. Here, not just in what Jesus says, because no amount of command, no amount of law, that's what Jesus is giving here initially, he's giving a command, you're not to be like that, that's a law, and no amount of law changes the human heart. This is what we should be like. Uh-huh, the world agrees. <laughs> All of our politicians say they are in public service. Sure they are. We, we all agree with this on the surface, but there's no amount of, of statement, no amount of, of public reinforcement that will actually change how the human heart works. There's got to be something else here. And there is. Jesus points out something important in verse 30. Begin at verse 30. I assign you a kingdom. 
now in an ongoing sense, that you may eat and drink at my table. Which again is in an ongoing sense, and you will judge coming up in the future. The point, Jesus has a purpose here, that. He's got something here that is, that is jointly coming about. I assign you this right to rule that you will have table fellowship with me. Two things he wants to have happen at the same time. You to rule, and that's going to bring you to this seat at my table so you can eat and drink with me in the kingdom. Which means a little more in this context than just, again, than just that you get to be in the kingdom. Think of, back in the Old Testament, if you think of uh, perhaps the most famous situation is King Saul with his table, where Prince Jonathan comes and General David comes to sit at the table in the king's palace. It's the inner sanctum where the ruling people sit. If you think of the army, maybe it's the officer's mess. The officers come and they sit here, not out there. The king and the prince and the generals of the army come and they sit here, not out there. Jesus is, in a sense, saying, I have a seat at my table that's empty, and I assign to you this right to rule so that you'll sit in this seat. I want you in charge, and I want you at the table with me. This is certainly true, uniquely so, for the 12 apostles. They had a unique connection with Jesus. They walked around with him for years. And then afterwards, we followed them to the New Testament. They experienced remarkable power, remarkable, miraculous power from Jesus performed through them. He creates for them a unique position of, of rule and a unique intimacy and a unique experience of him in that rule. You'll know me differently. You'll see me differently. You'll, you'll get some unique sense of my mind and heart. You'll share uniquely my provision. My power will be at your disposal. You'll get unique perspective and insight into what the kingdom looks like and how I'm building it. They're given a seat at the table as part of the call to lead. It's a joint thing. He exercises authority and exercises privilege, both for them. So, how does that solve the problem of authority? Such intimacy, such closeness with Jesus, that's what changes the human heart. That's what changes people. We heard it read earlier that as we behold this Christ in glory, that's how we, that's what changes, transforms us on the inside to make us different people, to make us more like him. Not just the statement, you should be like me, but in fact the drawing of us near to show himself to us, to feed us from his table that's what changes us to make us like him. If and as we embrace and soak in beholding 
the presence of Jesus, we are changed to be like him, and then we'll be different people exercising the authority in our hands. We'll find, if the human heart is first bent to look out for number one, what you find is two sweet things when you you sit and you soak in the presence of Jesus. First of all, you find out, I am not actually number one. He is. And I marvel at that. But then secondly, if I'm number two, I find that all my needs are actually met by him. I don't need to use my power to come in and gather in a life from them all. I have a life that I can give away to those he's put me in authority over. I can serve them because I am plenty satisfied. I'm full. I'm okay. I'm secure. I've got a seat at this table and I'm never going to be sent out. This is true, particularly of the apostles. But then by principle to all of the leaders that he appoints under them, and in fact to everybody in the kingdom. I do think, this is, this is impossible to, to quantify, but I do think that as he calls people into leadership positions, he does give them all now a unique, I'll say, angle. A unique understanding. There, there is something different that seems to me, and I, I can't put my finger on a passage about this, but it just seems to me is all I can say. That when he calls us to positions, just like with these apostles, he also calls us to a unique and different sort of intimacy with him. And the unique and different sort of intimacy is for the empowering of the service. But this is easily, we can easily show this to be true for all of us in the kingdom. This is a unique table, as I talked about, but he does invite all of us to the kingdom table. He invites us all into his presence. He means for us all to walk with him and all to know him, and that changes all of us. 2 Corinthians 3 is about all of us. As we walk with him, we are changed into being different people so that whether we go into a position of being an apostle or the chairperson of the subcommittee at the PTA meeting, wherever it is that we are in our different positions of authority, we're different people there. Keeping in mind, seeing that God the Son became a suffering servant for us to bring us into this spot of blessing derived from his service. That's what changes us. That's what we need to keep in mind if we're going to be enabled to be the type of servant leaders he calls us to. But that is hard to keep in view, especially when things seem to be going poorly. Which takes us to the second point. Satan seeks to destroy kingdom leaders. But Jesus prayerfully preserves them. 
Satan seeks to destroy kingdom leaders, but Jesus prayerfully preserves them. Right after saying, you all have been granted the right to rule in the kingdom, logically, it follows next, and so therefore, Satan is coming after you. That's what he says. He can destroy the leaders, he can destroy God's kingdom. Verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, referring to Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. As he did with Job so long ago, Satan is making a request of God, really a demand. He wants a free hand to sift like wheat at harvest. That is, you break apart the wheat and you pull the different elements of the, of the grain apart and you, you break it down. And what's his target? Well, the you in verse 31 is plural. He's after all of them all the apostles, all these chosen leaders, but particularly as the chief leader, Simon first and foremost, Peter first and foremost. Why Jesus switches into talking the singular about Peter specifically. Warns him. Simon, Satan is after you all, especially you. Is the sense of the warning. But Peter doesn't understand. He thinks he is sufficient. Thinks he has it under control. Thinks he's strong enough. He's evidently beginning to get some of the idea that this is going to be a hard path ahead. So he's, he sees prison and death out there somewhere and says, I'm ready for it. And Jesus, of course, knows he isn't because he knows all of the future details and knows the depth of the danger. But the danger really is for all the leaders. Satan is coming for you all. To do what? Any and everything he can towards a particular goal. And it's worth noting the particular goal because we can then work in reverse from that. We can realize this is what's important. You realize what he's really after, then you can realize what you need to really defend and pay attention to. Will he attack their health? Maybe. But that's not the ultimate goal because health and sickness is not ultimate. Will he attack their sustenance, their food and their jobs? Maybe. But again, not just for that sake. Will he attack their family members? Sure, okay, probably. He did all of that with Job. Those were all of his targets with Job. Those will be his targets with other leaders in the church. But towards what ultimate purpose? Not just because he wanted to, to kill Job's kids, but because he wanted to get Job to think that God has done him wrong and that his life wasn't secure and wasn't good with God and therefore to abandon God. In other words, to make Job distrust God. Satan is not just out to break our bodies or our bank accounts. He seeks to destroy our faith because that would be true destruction. 
That would destroy us because it would cut us off from real life. You can commune with God while deathly ill. You can get into heaven without any money, but you can't know God and you can't walk with God and you can't derive joy and power from God and you can't live with God forever without faith in Christ. You cannot live, but will instead perish without heart dependence on, trust of, faith in Christ. That's what's supremely vital, and that's what Satan is after. And the threat against the stuff in our lives is just a means to that vital end. Get this, Satan banks on our poor theology. Satan banks on us thinking, if I do the right thing, then God will reward me and bless me. He thinks we think like that. And so he reasons that if he can afflict us in some way while we are doing the right thing, it'll look like God is a liar. Follow that. The only way it looks like God's a liar is if I've already mistakenly believed when I do the right thing, God said he'd bless me. That's wrong. Do you believe that? A whole bunch of people do, and Satan banks on it. When I do the right thing, God said he'd bless me. I'm doing the right thing, and I lost my job, and I got cancer, and my kids abandoned me, and one of them died in a car accident. God's a liar. That's Satan's game plan. If he afflicts us in some way while we are doing the right thing, it looks like God is not blessing us, and we will think God is not upholding his end of the deal, that he's bad, untrustworthy, unloving, and we will become angry with God, disenchanted with God like Judas became, become convinced that some other path has a better offer, lead to a better life, and so in unbelief we will turn from God and walk away down a different path. which for leaders would have a terrible consequence, of a terrible witness, and would likely lead to the abuse of power, which can double down on the terrible witness. Because then all the world will point at church leaders abusing people with their power. He seeks to destroy us because he seeks to destroy the kingdom, and he seeks to destroy us by seeking to destroy our faith. And so that's what Jesus prays for in verse 32. He wants to sift you, but I have prayed for you that he won't be allowed to sift you. No. He wants to sift you, but I have prayed that your faith may not fail. He does not ask that Satan's sifting be thwarted or stopped or pulled up short. He does not ask that the Father forbid us from ever experiencing illness, that he'll keep Satan from causing job loss or he'll keep Satan from causing our marriage to fall apart or a loved one to be gone. No, that's not what he prays for. Because that's not the ultimate issue. I've prayed that as he attacks and as he picks you apart, that in the midst of that, your faith will not fail. 
That's what Jesus prayed for, and Jesus' prayers are always heard. That's the good news. This explains for us some of what's going on with Peter, some of what's going to happen with Peter. So it's, it's good to know that. It's good to know it ahead of time. It shows Jesus' knowledge of and control of the situation. But, it, but it's here to teach us more, to teach us about our own situation too. Jesus alludes to here what is now going on for us moment by moment, his high priestly role, his, his role as intercessor before God the Father for us. He alludes to that here. His praying for us, his, his asking God the Father to act on our behalf. He is now always offering up prayers of petition for us, his people. And he always prays the right thing. He always prays the will of God because he is God and he knows what's right. And the Father always says yes, of course, because it's also the Father's will. So Jesus' prayers are always heard. So he knows the request is going to be answered, that Peter's faith will not ultimately fail. It will waver, but it will not ultimately fail. He preserves prayerfully all who are his in real faith. So, Simon, when you have turned back, I know you're going to turn away, but I also know you're going to turn back, because I've prayed for you. And when you turn back, Strengthen your brothers. Strengthen them with what you've learned and come to see more sweetly through the fire of attack and temptation. Peter comes out the other side of this, if you know the story. Peter comes out the other side of this humbled, more aware of his own weakness, and more aware of the sweetness of being accepted by Jesus. Take that, Peter, and strengthen your brothers with it. Give them comfort with the same comfort that you have experienced. Gives us some idea, perhaps, of why it is that Satan is allowed to sift, why Jesus doesn't pray to stop the sifting, because it's used of God to change us. It's used of God to humble us, used of God to bring us into a, a different and, and deeper awareness of what it's like to be welcomed and, and received back by God. Make us more aware of our own weakness. So sometimes God may use that. Sometimes God does use things that are incredibly hard for us. But the thing I think we're supposed to see from this most acutely, most clearly, is when we're facing trials and hardships in life, the thing that's going on, it's impossible to know all the details. Everything that's everything that's going on, but you work it all down to the bottom level. In every situation, the thing at issue is my holding tight to God in Christ or not. That's the real issue. Yes, I need a job. Yes, these classmates are being mean and embarrassing me, and I wish I could fix that. Yes, my, my health is a concern. Yes. But most important, beneath that, 
What is most at issue here is whether or not I will continue to rest content in Christ. Whether or not you will rest content in Christ. Believing. Trusting yourself to Him. Believing that He is what you need. That His way is best. That He has a plan. That He holds your future in His hands. That He is always at work and will not leave you nor forsake you. But has in fact given you a seat at the table and you will find what you need from Him. Come. Come. Come and see. Do you believe Him or not? Do you believe Him or not? Come and see that life is not about you. How hard is that? We've probably all been in some sort of a situation where, where you just want to say, life is screaming at me. And it is terrifying or excruciatingly painful. And in that situation to say, but life is not about me. It's about him. That's true. Really hard to see it there. May the Spirit of God open our eyes to see it there. But that's where Job sat, was it not? In ashes, covered in sores, with his family dead, and his very own wife, curse God and die. No. That's the whole point of why Job's there. Job's life is not about Job. Job's life is about God. Your life's not about you. It's about God. That's what's going on at the bottom level. To see whether you will see that, to see whether you will trust him. To, to know that, I think, to know that is helpful, I think. And then to know that's what's at issue here and that ultimately, well, I must persevere in faith. I must Spend my time before the means, before the scripture, in prayer. I must persevere in faith. But ultimately, this is above my pay grade. I am not strong enough. God, help me. Jesus, will you pray? In the, in the face of this kind of attack, we are fools to think we are evenly matched. But we should be comforted to know that the one who's in us is greater than the other one. And to, to sit before him and say, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. Will you help, please? Will you open my eyes? Because I cannot see through this darkness. I cannot see through this pain. I cannot hear through the screaming. I cannot help, please. This looks different for all of us, of course. This is what we need. This is what's going on in life. Behind everything that you're facing, the issue is hold to Christ or not. So I can, I can exhort you, persevere. But in saying that, what, 
what I want to be clear that I'm saying is persevere in crying out to Jesus to preserve you. That's what we need. The intercession of Christ on our behalf is what saves us from Satan's attack, carries us forward, causes us to persevere with him. And then, if we loop this back into the context of the previous section, then this is what keeps us in a position where we are capable of being the types of servant leaders that he calls us to be. Because the thing is, when you're a parent and you're facing loss of job or health concern, you're still a parent and you're still supposed to be a servant leader to your kids. When you're a husband, when you're a church leader, when you're a whatever you are, when you're facing the struggle and the trial that doesn't give you a free pass to now not serve others, still called to do that. That only is going to come as you see Christ, and that's only going to come as Christ praying for you opens your eyes. This is our need. So that's what I'm going to pray for now. That he will preserve us, all of us, and in particular then that he will feed us so that we will be people changed to be like him. Servant leaders where he calls us. Let me pray. Father, in many ways, there's a lot of issues here uh, that I kind of threw out there on the table. There's, there's issues about leadership and authority, and then there's issues just about plain old ordinary spiritual attack. There's issues about perseverance and faith and your preservation of us. There's issues about praying and walking with you. What does each person need, Father? You know. So we ask you now, would you please, to each one of your people here, would you please minister to them personally? Would you grow in us, Lord, an attitude that is one of service towards others, of gentle and and humble-hearted care for, not self, but others. Would you protect us, Lord, as we, as we struggle through the things we struggle through? Would you protect us from unbelief? Would you assure us of your goodness? And maybe in part you would do that even now as we take these, these communion elements in hand and remember the Passover. Remember what it was that you long ago planned and foretold and then brought to pass and have promised to bring to pass. There's a feast coming when you said you would dine with us all. And until then, you wouldn't drink. You wouldn't drink the the fruit of the vine in celebration. You would wait. We wait for that time now, Lord, and it's promised to us. Give us eyes to see it as we take in our hand now this cup, as we take in our hand now this bread. Meet with us here now and build your church, I pray.
Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.